Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 54th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Greg Friedman. Greg is the co-founder of Private Ocean, an independent RA in Northern California that manages nearly $1.2 billion of assets under management for 450 households with a combination of both investment management and financial planning services. What's unique about Greg, though, is that in addition to leading a billion-dollar advisory firm he founded over 25 years ago, he also developed his own CRM system to better manage all the workflows for his financial planning clients, which he eventually made available to other advisory firms as well in the form of the software that we now know as Juncture CRM. In this episode, Greg talks about how Private Ocean got its initial traction with a niche center of influence with the California Tire Dealers Association, just to emphasize that any niche can work when you build connections to the key centers of influence, how the firm is structured today with lead and advisor associates, the way that compensation is set for the firm's lead advisors, and why Private Ocean has decided to charge only AUM fees despite having such a deep focus on its financial planning work with clients. In addition, we talk in depth about the real-world challenges that cropped up when Greg decided to merge his successful advisory firm with a larger one seven years ago to become the successor CEO of the combined organization when the other firm's founder retired, how Greg today is able to manage his software company along with his advisory firm and how he handles his time, the guiding philosophy that he uses to stay focused across all of his businesses, and why Greg thinks it's so crucial to have an executive coach. And be certain to listen to the end where we include a small bonus interview because ironically, in the short time between when we originally recorded this podcast and went live, it was announced that Greg had actually sold Juncture to Advisor Engine. So we gather some of his thoughts about what makes you want to sell a company you built, especially when you're not actually ready to retire yet. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Greg Friedman. Welcome, Greg Friedman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the on the podcast today because you are part of what I call the the a special elite club of financial advisors. Those who have been an advisor and founded a tech company that serves advisors because you you not only have a a billion-dollar advisory firm, which we'll talk about during the podcast today. But you're the founder of Juncture, uh, one of the leading CRMs for financial advisors. And and there aren't very many advisors who've managed to, well, frankly, even do do one of those rather than, or not to mention doing both and sustainably. I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things to me about what you build is you're, you're, you're still involved in both companies 15, 20-plus years later. And, yes. you know, that's... Yes. I know is a, a trial unto itself to figure out how to how to manage that balance. So I'm just I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and talk about you know the advisory firm growth to a billion dollars, launching a tech company for advisors, uh, actually figuring out how to do both at the same time. <laughs> it's uh, this should be an interesting discussion. Well, yeah, I, and to be fair, just a great place to start is I did not set out to do this. So, so 25, 30 years ago, I didn't say, boy, when I'm 56 years old, I'm going to be, you know, CEO and principal of these two, you know, growing, successful, very different firms. 
So just to just to put it out there, and we'll we'll explore that a little bit. You're you're you you don't think of yourself as like you were just a hardwired entrepreneur. Just the only question was what business you were going to build, but you were setting out to build a business from day one. That's that's not quite your style. Well, no, actually, I'm definitely hardwired to be an entrepreneur. And early in my well, actually, mid twenties was when I really landed on and 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 uh, got excited about wealth management. It's my passion. Uh, you know, financial planning, doing what we do for clients is, uh, you know, that's that's still uh, really uh, a huge driver and motivator for me. And since so that, you know, that's that's where I dove in and and that's where I, I took off. I mean, if you want to talk about where software jumped in, I'm happy to, to go there. Yeah. Well, as, as a starting point, why don't you just give us a little bit of context around the advisory firm? So you're you're a co-founder and CEO of Private Ocean, independent RAA in, in California. So can you talk to us a little bit about just what is, what is Private Ocean? What do, you, what do you do? Who do you do it for? What does that business look like? Sure. So we are definitely a, you know, I like to say a high-end boutique wealth management firm. Private Ocean today is about $1.2 billion. Um, we've got 27, I believe, full-time employees, seven advisors in total. You know, we definitely are the comprehensive financial planning, comprehensive wealth management model. So again, you know, it's not, we start with financial planning, you know, investments we get to, but uh, it's definitely the full service, the full service model. So what does this look like from the the business model end? Like, are you, are you a a firm that ultimately charges for assets under management and includes the planning with what you do? Are you a retainer style firm? Do you do a blend? Yeah, you hear my, you know, we've, we've been through a lot of evolution. I used to do upfront financial planning fees and then AUM for the ongoing. And then, you know, uh, we, we have to sort of, we're in San Francisco, we're in the Bay area. So competitively, uh, you know, the market sort of has has some impact on us. So where we are today is we're 100% AUM based fees. I say that with the full openness and acknowledgement that all of that is constantly under review of whether we might go to retainer, whether we you know that whole thing. But today as we sit, it's it's AUM based and um and that's where our revenue comes from. That's an interesting shift though and and to talk about it in the competitive context. So can you, can you talk a little bit more uh, about that? Like what was the, yeah, what was the our, problem with doing upfront planning fees? It just came down to, you know, they, they talked to three good firms in the Bay area and you guys had an upfront and everybody else didn't. And that just felt awkward. Well, none of our competitors do. And so if you're talking to someone who, who, uh, you know, is just a fantastic prospect from a planning and AUM and growth perspective and is a great fit, they're suddenly looking at, you know, three very almost similar looking firms. We've got our differentiators that we think and, you know, they have theirs. And what ended up happening was it was consistently, even though it wasn't very much, we would charge five and $10,000 for an upfront fee it became this sort of delta that constantly my advisors or somebody was having to address. And then when we looked at it, we're like, well, we're not doing huge volume. We're not taking a hundred clients in a year. That's not our, that's not our goal either. So then it's like, well, so for $50,000 a year, let's say. Right. Like 10, 10 new clients yeah. paying five grand each. 
Yeah, or or 20 new clients, 100 grand. Do we really want to have this sort of little bit of a barrier here? Didn't seem to make a lot of sense. If we were going to go to something different, we would need to go to something different. But the upfront fee like that was just sort of, you know, if everybody else was doing it, we would have been great. But uh, so I was just trying to remove the barrier because it wasn't really contributing meaningfully to anything. Well, I think it's an interesting dynamic. You know, there's, there's a lot of firms that talk about the the importance of charging upfront for planning and, and certainly there's some virtues to that but you do get just this fundamental challenge that you're introducing another barrier another decision point for a client and and you know particularly if you're working with reasonably affluent folks you know i mean if you're if your average client's going to have even hundreds of thousands of dollars never mind a, a million or few dollars with you you just get to the point where it's like okay uh a million dollar client with a ninety seven percent retention rate is going to cumulatively pay me one or two or three hundred thousand dollars of advisory fees over the next thirty years. Why do I have to get the other five grand up front? Yep. And the other side, yes, that's exactly right. That was part of the analysis. And the other part of it was also, I think, goes to some of the issues in our industry that we're always talking about. I'm a I'm a founder generation guy. I'm a guy who walked out set up a shingle, got my education, started knocking on doors. You know, I remember prospecting, literally going to to uh, business parks and things like that. And, you know, I had to learn pretty, pretty good, that horrible word that we all run from, sales skills. I mean, I had to learn how to convince people to pay me and work for things and all that. Well, okay, great. So then I start building a firm and I start hiring people to support me. And they're talented and they're smart and they're educated. And honestly, they're not the best salespeople closing those kinds of things. And that's not a judgment. Well, maybe it is. It's not not to be negative. It's just a thing. So now you have this firm that you're asking those people to generate business as they can or and it's a different animal. So that was also part of the calculus too, because it was hard for people, you know, to, you know, adding another barrier to getting new clients wasn't helpful. So, well, I, I felt like there's this underappreciated challenge that's out there right now that I, I see particularly in in large advisory firms, lar- large BD practices, and large independent RAs. Once you once you get north of like a billion dollars under management. You know, the the standard formula in the 90s and 2000s, if you wanted to get to a billion-dollar firm, was basically be great at business development, bring in clients, train advisors to serve the clients so that you can hand the clients off, uh, so you can free up your capacity to go get more more new clients. And if you were good at that or had uh, a couple of co-founders and partners with you that were good at that, like you could power your way over 20-plus years to a billion-dollar firm just – one client at a time, one after another that you brought in and handed off and brought in and handed off. And and you know, because you don't want to bring them in and then have them leak out the back end, you you would hire you know just the best darn service-oriented advisors that you could find, right? The ones that would be great at follow-through and communicating with clients and doing all the technical stuff that demonstrates value. And and it was a great model and built a lot of great firms. With a caveat that then you get like 15 or 20 years down the road and you look back and and say, we have a fantastic group of financial advisors and none of them can bring in new business. 
because the founders did it did it all for 20 years, which was great for the building process, but then suddenly creates challenges. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So how do you how do you deal with the uh, kind of the classic fear that if all you charge is an AUM fee, your clients are only going to value you for your for your investment management services. You know, you've said you're a planning centric, planning first firm that charges 100 percent on AUM. Yes, that's a it's a great question, and I to this day uh, I'm going to tell you what we do, but to this day it's something we continue to stress about and try to continue to help people see us as more, right? So number one, it's all in the communication to clients. So if what you're communicating is, here's our market analysis, here's your performance analysis. If every interaction is, how do you feel about the markets then and performance, then of course, you're just validating what they already are predisposed to think of you. So, so we're really intentional that probably 80% of our communication, and we're very intentional, we literally have communication plans and we think about quarterly and monthly and all this kind of stuff. But something like 75 to 80% is intentionally not market, investment, performance related. So it might be financial planning topics, it might be health topics, it might be long-term care issues, elder care issues, liability, insurance, risk management, right? All these other things, even about quality of life. I mean, we do quality, not quality, we do, well, they're quality, but we do events that are specifically not investment related. You know, so, so for example, in our neighborhood, in our area, there's a thing called the Buck Institute. And the Buck Institute is this kind of secretive, really interesting uh, place that does research on essentially its whole purpose. It's a 501c3, it's, but its whole purpose is it's, it's realized that as people's life expectancy has increased, the amount of healthy years in relationship to the unhealthy years is not improving and in fact getting way worse. So so let's say your life expectancy was 70 10 years ago and now it's 75. Well and and 10 years ago at 70 you had 60 healthy years and 10 on average unhealthy years. Well, when you look at their graph that they'll show you the next decade now it's 75, well your your healthy years go up like by one or two years and your unhealthy go up by four or five. So so in other words life expectancy is definitely extending, but the quality is actually not improving. And they are dedicated and focused on moving that ratio, which is fantastic, right? It's really interesting to think about. Well, my point is we do client events because our one of the co-founder of Private Ocean is retired now, but he's on their board. And so we do events around improving, you know, so we'll bring in clients and let the CEO of Buck talk about improving health in your elder years. And we tee it up as, hey, we're just sponsoring it, but Private Ocean improves your financial health in your elder years, right? Nice, nice, huh? Yeah, nice. Pretty good, Mike, huh? I like <laughs> it. I like yeah. it. It's, yeah. so. you know, the, there's an interesting phenomenon to me that, there's all this discussion about whether charging AUM makes clients more investment centric. And I have to admit, I, you know, 
I've always been in your in your camp as well, and and in part I'm biased because this is our model at Pinnacle as well. You know, we would we we focus on being a planning centric firm, but we charge an AUM model, and, and it's because we try to make sure we're deliberately focusing our time on the planning related stuff and not the and not the investment related stuff. And to me, the challenge actually that that comes up like the 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 biggest difficulty I see for a lot of firms that that try to be planning centric but do an AUM model from the business owner and business management perspective it kind of messes with your head a little is what I find cuz when you're on an AUM model like I know how to grow my business go get more assets so I can focus on assets I can focus on asset retention I can compensate people for doing more asset gathering and and improving their client retention. I can compensate an investment team for performance results. I, I can do all these things that you know now start to really directly tie business incentives to the revenue of the firm because the revenue of the firm is an AUM model. And you start losing focus on the planning side. And suddenly planning is, is because you don't charge for it. So it's not literally directly a revenue driver. I've just I've watched a lot of firms struggle with this. You know, when the when the model is AUM and not planning, they start treating asset gathering like a revenue activity and financial planning like a cost. And no great surprise, most of us try to manage costs as business owners, and they they start choking out the depth of the planning work they're doing. They they kind of do it to themselves by maybe l- losing focus of the planning centric model because their business model was AUM oriented. Right? It's like it's it's not a client issue. It's a like it's yeah. a business management issue about how you manage the planning costs and think about them. If you accept, you're not going to drive any revenue from it. So interesting. We are not experiencing that. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist at all. But I would share with you, if you're interested, I can tell you how we structured our compensation and incentives and things like that. And I think it might address that because – after many different trials and errors, we've landed on something that we've had in place now for probably, yeah, this is our fourth year without any changes and no complaints, which is... Let's just, God bless. That's a wonderful thing in a business. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. And and we worked with, uh, we worked with um, you know, Kelly Cruz, who does consulting in our industry around compensation. Um, you know, we worked with her to structure this and it was based on literally looking at the firm and what we're trying to do and all that. So if you like, I can just run through high level what we do. Yeah. What is, what does it look like? So you said you have, well, I guess maybe set a tiny bit more context for us. So you said $1.2 billion of AUM, 27 employees, seven advisors. How many, how many clients are we talking about? We have about 450, you know, households, families that we consider clients. And so like rough, rough math, you know, your typical client is a two and a half to $3 million client household. Yes. Yeah. Our minimum and our minimum has gone to 2 million starting a few years ago. But, you know, if you look at that, we probably have a third of our clients are maybe even 40% are under 2 million. And then the 60% that are over 2 million, they start going up quite a bit and and then average which is always scary right my my joke about average is you stand on one side of a river and the other the banks on the other side and it averages two feet deep you're you're still gonna drown if when you go across it because right <laughs> yep yep it gets a little deep in the middle yeah so anyways you, you but got, that's uh, 
So you, you've got 40% that are under a current 2 million minimum because your minimums were lower in the past and you've just exactly you've right. to hold on to those clients. Yeah, because of my business, I'm almost 28 years into the business. And Richard, uh, remember, we're, Private Ocean is the, uh, the result of a merger with Salient Wealth Management. And my former partner, Richard, he... You know, he was in the business 40 years. So, so I mean, you you know, you start, you have a lot of legacy clients and there are a lot of good ones. So, we don't, we didn't, we didn't do anything with that. We just said, okay. So, but, um, okay. Yeah. so on average, you know, your, your average advisor has got 60 something clients that they're serving well, with a couple million no, 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 dollars no. each on average. No, no, no. So, let me do a little more clarity. So, we have four lead advisors. Um, and then three associate advisors. So the lead advisors are the ones with direct. So so actually, a typical advisor here has 80 to 110. But they're able to do that many as an RIA because every advisor has an associate advisor. Uh, we have a CSR team, client service team. So every client has a dedicated senior or lead advisor, associate advisor, and a dedicated CSR. So, so in other words, there's support. So they're able to handle more clients just simply because they're not doing it on their own in a vacuum. Because we also have, of course, like Pinnacle probably, we have investment operations. So they're not doing any trading. They're not doing any, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, so that's, that's sort of the metrics. Um, so, so what does the compensation structure then look like for these? Well, it's the lead, lead, it's the lead advisors, advisors, right? So this is, this is where um, what we've landed on is it goes like this. It's essentially, there's a low or relatively low base compensation. And we use that base compensation. That's where we can sort of lower or higher reward experience, tenure, maybe some additional responsibility. You know, we can, we can use that for, for different things. Then they get a percentage of the AUM revenue that they are you know, it's like their own little book of business, but they're not silos, just to be clear. But then I'll explain how this all lands. But basically, so so a typical advisor in our firm has 250 to 300 million of AUM across all the clients they're working with. And so the revenue attributable to that, they get a percentage of that. And then on top of that, they also get any new clients that they get, in addition to the ongoing revenue piece that they would get, there's like 25% of revenue payouts that happen in first and second year. The idea being that there are kickers and incentives to develop new business. But what we tried to align is this. You want to retain clients. In the long run, that is that is your focus. You also are have incentive to get new business, but not at the expense of losing a client. So going back to your comments earlier about planning and things like that, what's what we all know cements the client relationship is the planning activities, the ongoing actually talking to the client and helping them with other things so that when the markets go down, which they will, they don't call you, blame you, fire you, right? I mean, so this, I'm simplifying, but that's basically how the structure works. And we have not and and then I think also the other thing that came to mind when you were describing you know some firms having that challenge, a lot of it's cultural too. I mean, if you hire somebody who really loves planning, they're not going to avoid the planning work 
just to get the next dollar. They like planning. So, so we actually, my point is, is that if anything, we've actually had challenges. And then this is not unique. I, I, I travel like you do. And everybody I talk to, we all have organic growth challenges, right? How do you get clients or how do you get advisors who are primarily service oriented to develop new business? And so one of the things that we are doing this year and having some real success with it is, and I know that others have struggled with this one, but we actually have someone that we brought in strictly for business development. And while we're just finishing like a dedicated business development. Yep. His job is a prospect. His job is to create at bats. He knows enough of the story and he's educated and he's really spent three months really indoctrinating into our story. So he can tell preliminarily the story. But the idea is if he creates a good opportunity, he brings in one of the lead advisors and the two of them go in. And if this guy's job is to seal the deal, close the deal. And then we've, we've structured comp and we're actually, we're actually getting some good success with it. And, and the advisors who are typically service advisors are loving it because they get the opportunity to come in, you know, in the beginning, kind of let this guy, you know, do the selling as it were, but then these, these guys can provide the technical and, and, you know, so I was going to ask, like, how do you, when a dedicated business development person goes out to get the new clients, like, how do you bond the clients to the advisor and not have them bondage the business development person then want to work with that person and they can't because you're transitioning off? Because you, because you do the, the sales, I guess the sales meetings are joint. The, the prospecting is standalone, but the sales meetings are Correct. joint. And and we're having some success with this and we're we're pretty excited and we like you know, I mean we like the person, obviously, and you know, he's a good addition. Where do you find someone like that? <laughs> Luck. Serendipity. I mean, uh, I spent years thinking about it, fantasizing about it, talking about it. Boy, where would I find somebody like that? Um, honestly, came through a connection, you know, a, a guy we knew really well said, you know what, you should talk to this guy. He's you know, and and his his situation was, you know, he was with one of the big wirehouses and doing some, you know, BD for for uh, the principal guys there. And, you know, he 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 thinks fiduciary. He hated being there. <laughs> uh, he was like, uh, you know. So, I mean. So, he was a cultural fit who wanted out. He wanted out. But I think, you know. I would love to tell you, you can run a Craigslist ad and you're going to have 20 people that are great that lined up. No, you're going to have to put it out in the universe. You're going to have to recruit. You're going to have to attract and and you're going to have to get lucky because the cultural fit aspect of it has to work too. But, you know, I'm, I'm in the camp of you pursue all options when you're trying to solve a problem and you don't limit yourself to, well, this is the only solution because that's limiting. Right? I mean, you don't know that that's yeah. So, so one follow up question really fast around compensation for advisors. I'm I'm just wondering if you can share, even if it's kind of an approximate range, like what what sorts of percentage of AUM revenue do you actually provide them as compensation? I realize like it's on top of a base, so it's not their only comp source. But I, like I find just so, firms are all over the place about how they do this. Yeah. 
I, I want to say three to five, and I'm and I'm speaking a little out of school because I don't have the schedule in front of me. But it's not, you know, it's not twenty five percent of revenue. I mean, there's a huge overhead factor. But the point is, that's where we use base comp plus this percentage plus some other bonuses that are paid based on performance and goals and things like that to get to a package that's a good compensation, right? But it's got a bunch of incentives aligned in there to. To, and that's, and I guess that's part of how you avoid having the advisors treat this like like their own silos because it's 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 just a few percentage points on revenue. It's enough that they've got some upside for growth and retention, but you know they they can't just double their comp by sitting back on their AUM and letting the market carry their their compensation massively higher. No, definitely. correct, correct, interesting. Yep, and and so. What does the, the, the planning process look like for you guys? I mean, when you know, you've said you're a planning a planning focused firm, you've you're also managing assets. Like I'm just wondering what that upfront process looks looks like. Like do you make them do the planning first and then manage? You know, will you not take the assets if they haven't done the planning work yet? Or you say, No, 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 we we want the assets because it's revenue, but then we'll service them with the planning. What what is that? upfront process look like? Well, I'm, I'm smiling. It's a podcast and it's not a video <laughs> cast. And I'm smiling because there's the desired and ideal. Right. And then there's what happens. Uh-huh. So the desired and ideal is what I will describe. And then I'm happy to share with what really happens. But um, ideally, it's very organized. I could show you this fantastic flow chart that says this is exactly how we work. And for, you know, some percentage, half, I don't know, this is how it works. We do a nice introductory meeting. We then gather all the documents. We look like the CFP six-step program, right? I mean, gather all the documents. We analyze all the documents. We get into goals, values, family, life, health, you know, right? We dream big. We then come up with, here's all the assessment of issues. Here's all the things that need to be fixed and then we start fixing and and those are areas that include investments and retirement plans and estate plan right the whole gambit so ideally at least it's uh it's a plan first and then investments get implemented at the end is just part of the implementation process absolutely now in practice that happens quite a bit but you know invariably clients will come in the way i describe it is this you, know, you go see a doctor, you're not feeling well, or maybe you are feeling well, but you know something's up. And you go see a doctor, well, okay, so they come see us or we somehow get them to listen to us. But they're pointing to their elbow and they're saying, you know, their elbow's bleeding. And what they want is a bandage on their elbow. And we're saying, well, that's great, but we really want to do a holistic, full <laughs> assessment because your elbow's bleeding because your diet's horrible and you're, you know, right? I mean, right. so we want to get into that. Now, as you guys know, Michael, you've been around a long time. I mean, clients are, there's a range of acceptance of how much they want to go into all that versus just put the bandage on my elbow. So, so the reality is, is that for the most, for the majority of clients, we definitely follow our process. We do planning first. Part of the plan is the investments and the implementation around that. And, you know, we definitely do it earlier in the process because, you know, that's how it goes. But, but it's not 
you know, throw the portfolio in something and then, oh, we'll get to your other stuff. I mean, we really want to make sure we understand the client and what we're trying to solve for. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's usually how it goes. And then what do you, what's the technology backend for doing all of this financial planning work and service work? I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume the firm uses Juncture for its CRM. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yes, we do use Juncture. Um, so we are multi-custodial. So that always poses a challenge as you get bigger, but you know, Schwab, Fidelity, ED, a little bit of Pershing, you know, not because we're gluttons for punishment, but because, you know, we're, we're doing an acquisition and they use Fidelity and, the, you know, right. So you end up in these different, these different constituencies, but that's fine. Juncture, you know, plays well with all of them. So that, that works out. Okay. We use, um, well, right now, uh, a lot of our technology infrastructure I'm happy to share what we currently use, but I will tell you that it's all in play and we're making decisions around um, very cool going Let's, going in different directions. So yeah, uh, so what are what are you using and and why might you not be using it in the future? Well, I mean, so so again, I'm a long long line when you're around forever, like older than dirt. Uh, you use some things that you continue to use because, you know, everybody knows how to use it and it's super easy and all that. So, so we use Money Tree and, the, and that package of products uh, for financial planning. So silver and golden years and. Yeah, that's all, that's all under review. And I, I don't know that that's going to be there. And then we use some different, uh, really some, you know, like specialized charitable planning and you know we use some almost calculator like uh i mean they're they're not hard to use but they're more specialized things um we're we're gonna you know we're like a lot of us we're going platform we're going you know e-money type situation portals we're looking at onboarding i mean there's a whole bunch of stuff right now that's in play that i expect in 2018 we'll be making some final decisions and executing on we haven't landed yet so you know i'd love to share with you but i'm not there yet <laughs> but we're definitely looking but that's kind of your your leaning is a uh, like from a from a money tree to something like an e-money advisor yeah i mean we're definitely looking at more of a platformy I, I mean you know you know the argument the argument is this you have this one you know this holistic gigantic platform that none of the components are very good or you have these one off really great applications that are super cool and in-depth that don't talk and don't, and then they don't, and they talk, don't talk to, talk each, to other. each other, don't integrate. <laughs> I would love to tell you that we're super unique and we're ahead of all that. The reality is the industry is where it is. I mean, they're making headway on it, but it's, it's not an exact, it's not exactly there. So what we're going to be doing is, you know, like a lot of bigger firms, I think kind of a hybrid approach. I think we're going to, you know, platform some core components and applications for, for scalability and then have some things around it that we still feel we want to have and, and need to have and, and we'll use, but, um, but I haven't fully landed there yet. Uh, but that's, that's kind of where we're headed. And, um, and I look forward to that. What about portfolio accounting and, and rebalancing tools? Yeah. So currently we use Tamarack. Uh, they're doing our accounting and we use their portal and, and their rebalancer. Yeah. And and we're using their, uh, we are using their, um, what do they call it? Their service bureau or whatever. I mean, they're they're doing the daily reconciliation and download, oh, but 
don't kid yourself. We still have to have someone pretty much full time checking their stuff all the time. And, and, uh, you know, that whole argument, you don't have to have anybody wrong. Yeah. That's kind of a bummer. I know. Well, (laughs) you know what? I mean, they're, they, they bring other things to the table, so I'm not, I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm just saying it's not, not as streamlined as one might hope. Well, remember when we were smaller, the selling point was you don't want to be held hostage by the one person in your firm that knows all this, right? And guess what? You get them and then they lose people that know your stuff and then they get sick, whatever. And you actually realize, well, there's only one person there that knows your stuff. So how's that different? (laughs) Anyways. So if you're using, I am curious, if you're using... Tamarax portal, and then you're thinking about something like eMoney Advisor, which has its own portal. Are, are you going to dual portal? Are you going to pass from Tamarack to eMoney? Are you going to tell clients we're still using eMoney now and pass through to Tamarack? Haven't gotten there yet, and that's part of that's part of the final decision making. Like, okay, which you know, how is this going to work? One of the things that that I'm determined is to have. So, so my vision of a portal doesn't seem to match what a lot of portals out there like Tamarack's a really good portal for investments it's a really good portal for investments i would like to repeat that it's a really good portal for investment my vision of a client portal for private ocean is one that says hey you're a private ocean almost like a website you're a private ocean here's your plan here's your how'd you like to communicate it to your advisor Here's some cool planning news. Here's your document vault. Here's your this. Here's your that with us. Oh, and here's your investments, right? So I will get us there. One way or another, somebody's going to get us there. But that that's that needs to be the portal. Not, you know, look, here's, here's uh, you know, mint.com with, you know, some stuff around it. I mean, that's, I get that that's useful, but that's, I want it to be more of an engagement site with us well and and to me frankly even even at least the you know the mint.com for advisors and clients i would argue is is more planning centric than investment portals you know i i we're uh we have a similar challenge in our firm we're money guy pro users and orion users and you know the orion portal is fine for what it does but it drives me nuts that clients log into an investment portal first i want them to log into a a comprehensive planning portal first, but Money Guy Pro hasn't built out full native portal capabilities the way that eMoney Advisor has. So now we're trying to figure out do we want to move from Money Guy Pro to eMoney Advisor just so we can get a more unified planning centric portal because that's what I want clients to see first. Yeah, you know, I feel like we're like the, there's this separation coming that planning centric firms really actually want different technology than investment centric firms. And in the past, we were all looped into one bucket because particularly when we all charge AUM. And as some firms become more planning centric while others just do their investment thing because that's their thing, uh, I feel like there's a more of a noticeable gap about the technology demands between the two and and they're different. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So talk to us a little bit about how you, how you came to this in the first place. How did you get started in the industry founding private ocean? I guess it was, it was a predecessor firm before that. Friedman. Yeah, Friedman and Associates. Friedman and Associates. So when yeah. when did Friedman and Associates launch? So in my twenties, I 
did a lot of soul searching and landed on this thing called financial planning, which was very early. But it seemed to combine the two things that I really wanted to do. I really wanted to help people. And then I apparently have a, a decently analytical, you know, I've never met a spreadsheet I didn't like, right? Amen. Right there with so, you. So what could combine those two things? And, and back then, self-assessment, you didn't do computers. You, you took tests. And then they came back and said things like, be, a, be an accountant, which didn't sound great to me, or be a banker, which didn't sound great to me. But there was this thing, financial planning. So I looked into that and, and, and it, you know, it was this new emerging profession and I got all excited about it. And uh, so uh, there were two master's programs at the time just starting up, uh, San Diego State and Golden Gate University. So I chose, because I grew up in San Diego, I chose San Francisco, right, just to go somewhere else. And uh, came up here, got my master's degree. And while I was getting my degree, you know, started making connections and all that. And as I was getting close to graduating, I uh, realized that there was next to no fee-only, you know, I'd, I'd met a fee-only guy in San Diego. And that's the model I had. But there was next to none of those in the country. I'm just curious, how'd you even come to that model? My dad. I mean, it was- yeah, my dad. My dad taught law in San Diego. And he had had a law student who had left the law and gone into fee-only. He was one of the first fee-only financial planning firms in the country uh, in San Diego. And and so he, when I was trying to figure out what financial planners do, he was one of the people I did an informational interview with. And I just, my I walked in the door and said, this is it. I mean, this is my picture of what a professional, right? I mean, he was a lawyer who had just, took out the law shingle and put up the wealth management shingle. Right. <laughs> and, you know, all the way down to the dark wood and the mahogany and the, it was professional, right? He was in a, he had a vest, uh, you know, a three-piece suit. I mean, it was just impressive, Michael. And I said, that's it. That's, you know, that's, that's what we can be here. Anyway, so uh, when I came to San Francisco, uh, I found out that there weren't any jobs to do that. You had to go into sales <laughs> to do that. Right. And yeah, you, you want to get paid for financial planning, go get some financial planning clients, go sell somebody something. So I, I started out at Cigna financial services in San Francisco and Which I was actually one of the early planning centric insurance companies. That's exactly the right. 70s and 80s. I, did my, I did my homework and found out that they had a three year training program and one of the strongest they targeted 2 million and up net worth. Now this was 25 years ago. So this is not you know, these yeah, were that's sig- a big number, man. These yeah. were significant clients, and they basically sold insurance by doing really advanced planning. And they liked guys like me with no sales experience, but were technically smart, right? I came out with a bachelor's in economics and a master's in financial planning, and they said, okay, come on in. So what they taught me was the most painful thing I ever went through was training around sales and consulting and it actually was some of the most valuable learning I've ever done. Really. I mean, I, I look back on that and I'm to this day, I'm still grateful for what I learned about how to communicate and how to talk to people and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, I uh, find it's a, it's a particular problem in the, in the, in the fiduciary advisory space. So I find there's this effect for so many firms where, you know, they say we're, or fiduciaries, we don't sell products. We don't sell. They, they proudly wear the badge of, of not being salespeople. And, and the problem is if you want to get paid, even just for your fee only advice, like you still have to sell someone on why they should pay you. Yes. Yes. That's so exactly my, yep. 
Still got to learn to sell. That's exactly my argument. Yeah. Well, so I, I went to Cigna for a couple of years with no intention of being a lifelong insurance guy. I, I just wanted to get enough under my belt, some experience and training to set up my own shop. And I did. So I, then I stayed there two years and then I left and I, I created Friedman and Associates and I called it Associates because Friedman didn't sound big enough. And because um, it was just me and I had just had twins at the time. So well, my associates, associates, yeah, my associates for my kids. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, I don't recommend starting a business right after you have kids and you just bought your first house. It's when in retrospect, I was a little stressed out. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so that was the beginning. And um, and, and how did it go? Like, how did you, how did you get traction in that first year or two? That's pretty hard for anyone. Well, I was very fortunate. So first of all, when you say get traction, I Cigna, I got traction. So my very first client that, that, you know, I was literally cold calling and knocking on doors and whatever. And my very first client that let me in the door and hired me, I, I said to him, I will do such a good job for you that, you know, I consider a form of my compensation. If you're happy, you know, please refer me, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? So I did such a good job for that guy. And it turned out he was president of the California Tire Dealers Association. So when I was done doing my work, he pulled out the, essentially the dealer guide for every dealer in California and said, tell me who you want to meet. And he did letters for me and he was just fantastic. And to you had a you in a niche center of influence in tire dealers. Yes. And, and, and at that time, well, let me say it differently. To this day, he's not only still a client, you know, but of course I love this man. I mean, I know his family well and all that, but, but you know, it's just a great, great help. And that sort of launched me into a bunch of those guys and then they referred me to others. And I mean, so it's not like I know every tire dealer. The point is it really got me a good start in business owners and, you know, higher net worth people that let me get going. And and I just was determined early on to do such a good job for people that they would want to refer me because I knew how painful it was to cold call. And I, you know, now I'd experienced that fun. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to love these people so much that they're going to be like, yeah, we, we've got to send them around. So, so, so I got to ask though, you do, do you view the environment as different today, right? Because you've still got planners that are trying to give awesome service to your clients so that hopefully you would get referred, right? You know, the, the old, I get paid two ways. Yeah. But organic growth is slowing for lots of firms. So like, what what changed? It's very different. So I had the benefit of, it was just wide open. I mean, 50 to 75% no, that's that's understating it. 90% of the people I was calling on or getting referred to had never worked with an advisor, right? 25 years ago. Today, everybody works with an advisor or they've chosen not to. They know what one is or they think they know what one is. And every new client we're getting, we're taken from somebody else. And they're interviewing, we're one of three or two of three. So that's very different. I, I don't, listen, I, I don't, I don't underestimate that at all. The, the entrepreneur in me completely recognizes that all that is, is a sign of a maturing industry. You know, one of the things I always talk about is my dad was a lawyer. 
very long time successful, taught law for 55 years. It really taught me a lot about life and uh, as our fathers do. But one of the things that, you know, isn't lost on me at all about any of this is just because it's a maturing industry and just because everybody you talk to isn't, you know, blue ocean and has never talked to anybody and you can land them easy doesn't mean that you can't compete and excel. It does mean it's not as easy and it does mean, you know, you can't be fat, dumb, lazy, happy, you know, right? You have to be good. And so, okay, right? I mean, I think that that's, that's fair. And, and I think that our industry has done a nice job, but I think that's okay for our industry to be better. So that's, that's good. So what did, the, what did the growth trajectory look like over those first couple of years? I don't know if you remember, but I... Well, I do. I mean, yeah, no, it's funny. Those milestones I, tend to be pretty exciting I, when you hit them. Well, it, it's just really funny because uh, I was actually looking at this the other day just for nostalgia purposes. You know, I actually had a spreadsheet that I would essentially every single year kind of write down, you know, some metrics like here's where I ended the year. And I was looking at this the other day and it was a crack up because I, I kept adding metrics as the years went on. But those first years, you know, like first year I made something like, you know, $9,000 or something. Awesome. And no, it was bad. I was financing things on credit card. And I mean, I, you know, I had to, I had to put money back in and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, year two was like 14 and then year three was 50. And I mean, I remember how long it took me to finally get to $100,000 and feeling like, oh, that's just, and that was actually, I could take it. Like it wasn't Yeah, dude, like you're, you're making six figures. <laughs> I know, I know. And it took me a long time to get there. But yeah, I mean, but as far as, you know, I had really consistent, I mean, I was pretty much doubling in client size almost every year from the time I started until we got to about, I mean, when we got to probably a hundred million in AUM, you know, that's when you start growing more like 40% or, you know. Yeah. The, the growth rates start coming down as the, as the business gets bigger. I, I call it the tyranny of the denominator, right? A, a growth rate's a fraction. The bigger you make that firm, the the harder it is to sustain that growth rate because you just need a zillion clients to sustain it when the asset base, when the denominator, the growth rate gets gets bigger. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah, I mean, but it was it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't as hard. I mean, it, I don't want to say it was easy because I don't remember that. I remember you know really tough days and getting turned down a lot and that kind of thing. But clearly today, you know, um, just the amount of sheer competition, the amount of confusion in the marketplace, it's definitely, you know, but, but I have to say, Michael, I am the kind of person that looks at that and says, I remember when the big wirehouses started really doing fantastic ads, really well done ads about hopes and dreams. We're going to get into your values and, you know. Most of us on this side of the fence know exactly what they're going to do and fleece them with their loaded mutual funds. But particularly no, no, back no. in the 90s. Was, yeah. Oh, yeah. And these were hopes and dreams. And I remember everybody on, again, the RIA side of the fence was up in arms about what are we going to do? This is horrible. And you know how I looked at it? I looked at it and I said, well, look, 
I think of this a little differently. They're going to help educate and create the demand that we can fulfill. Because if I hear that ad and then I go to a warehouse and get the experience I know I'm going to get, I'm now left hungry. And I'm now left going, well, who will do that? And and so I feel like, okay, they're just going to do the advertising that I can't afford to do. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting effect when you when you think about markets that way. The uh, I still remember whenever it was about three years ago, uh, you know, we had the original robo advisors, Betterman and Wealthfront, and then Schwab launched and Schwab launched with their zero fee Schwab intelligent portfolios. And all the discussion at the time was, uh, you know, this is going to put the robo advisor out of business because Schwab is charging zero. And you know, when we actually went back and looked at the numbers, because I'm a I'm a nerd and I like to track these things, the 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 biggest growth month that both Betterman and Wealthfront had at any point in their first five years was the month that Schwab launched a competing service. Because Schwab so blitzed the media with advertising and news stories and all the rest. And of course, any good reporter wants to not just, you know, promote the one company. So you gotta say, well, you know, Schwab is launching a robo-advisor, parentheses, like Betterman and Wealthfront. And you know, the launch of their competitor gave them their biggest growth months that they'd ever had to date. And I think it's just an it's an interesting framing that, you know, a lot of us tend to look at these sort of scarcity mentality, glass half empty. Like if my competitor is advertising, uh, they're going to take business away from me. And and the reality is for most of us, our biggest challenge is just overcoming client inertia. So if their commercial is the thing that makes someone get off their backside and call an advisor, at least it's a client in play now. That's better than what you had before. That's exactly right. And we benefit from it. So that's how I looked at it. And I, I still look at it that way because I know Schwab and some others are starting to do some nice advertising, but still, a lot of times that just drives it to them. So I, I, I'm still in the camp of let's just make sure we deliver in spades what those people want and expect from these ads, and let let market forces play out. Let market forces play out. Well, you asked something earlier, and I don't know if you want to go back to it or not, but but we really haven't gotten into. So how do I? How did I end up? technology because i think yeah that's a, as i say you so you, you i get asked that a lot you launched uh freeman associates in 91 you said so so off i go and you asked about how am i growing well i'm growing and i get to about 95 and i've hired a Nin- few people 1995 1995 sorry that's how many years ago it was 1995 and um and i've got you know two or three employees and we're clipping along and we're growing and I'm maxed out and I really want to help more people. And I don't know how to do that without hiring a bunch more people. I don't, this was 95, 96 was one of the very early first tech booms. So being in the Bay Area, um, Silicon Valley was exploding. And literally even a client service person could go take the pilgrimage down to the peninsula and get paid in stock options and all kinds of stuff. So it was really hard to hire. So I thought to myself, well, I want to grow. I want to continue to serve people in a great way. And I can't find bodies to help me do it. So I need to leverage And I've always been a student of technology. Like I've always been a gadget guy. I'm always, you know, trying new things, whatever. So I'd always read, you know, PC magazine, all those things, right? I used to read all that stuff. Well, so I knew 
that there had to be something that I had a vision and the vision of, uh, I'll describe it to you in a minute because now it sounds like, you know, so basic, but I had this idea that, look, why can't I look at a list of any, get a list of anyone who owns XYZ investment, send them a, a, a copy of an article on that investment, schedule a follow-up call in five days for that list of people to say, hey, did you get it? How do you feel about it? Whatever. And oh, by the way, also have a compliance record of it because remember, you have to have a list of anybody you send anything to and a copy of what. So, Michael, that was the genesis. That was literally the precursor to what became Juncture because I went through... You basically just wanted to make a workflow. Well, I tried everything on the marketplace at that time Every theory. So it's, that was like, that was act, act advice, gold mine. Act for advice, gold mine. Yeah. Bill Good Marketing, Pro Tracker didn't do it. Uh, I love Warren, but he didn't do it. All these other things. And, and all of them were like either way generic or the two industry specific things at that time were really not at all. I mean, Bill Good Marketing was just all about drip marketing. And I mean, it was just not a CRM. So, well, and, and Act and Goldmine were basically just electronic Rolexes. That's, right. That's right. At the they time. didn't have any. I, mean, I remember using them when I yeah. started. Like they just yeah, the amount giant list of contacts. Yeah, the amount of extra work you had to put in to make it useful for a financial advisor was off the charts. And so I, I literally, I, it's a, it's such a ridiculous story. I won't even share it. But I, I essentially got referred to Ken Golding, who became my partner. But you know, Ken and, and he and I just hit it off. I was describing what I was looking for and he's a developer and he said, let me take a crack at a prototype. You don't even have to pay me. Just let me put some together and show you. And if you think we're on the right track, then you can pay me hourly and I'll start building. And I literally had a list. Like again, to this day, I've got a picture of it. I don't think the original exists anymore, but I had a yellow pad and in my handwritten notes of about 14 items, which essentially are the basic specs of what became BAM, which became Juncture. But specs in terms of these are the things I, it should do. I mean, I wanted to do this. I want to do this. I want to track this, monitor this, whatever. And um, so he put together this prototype. And again, th- nothing about a software business. This is about he's going to help me write something that I can use in my business. This would just like private software for yep. yourself. It's gonna, he's going to build me something in Microsoft Access, right? And it connected to Word, Outlook, Excel. You know, it was this packaged, integrated, cool thing. And guess what? It, it came alive. In three months from meeting him, I was doing the things I'm describing to you. And I started showing that around. I was on the ICFP, right? The, the old institute. Okay. Yeah, predecessor to... Yep, and I was on uh, various committees and and helping to put together conferences and stuff, and people would ask me to talk about it and show it. And they're like, well, where can I get it? And I said, well, you can't. I mean, it's it's not... It's mine. I made it for me. Well, it wasn't public software. And anyway, so, so the next thing that happened was more and more people started asking me to buy it. And... You know, that, so, so my other, my other, I think, relevant part to this story, I'm a big proponent of executive coaches. So that's another star asterisk. Make sure you don't edit this out from the podcast. I think that's a really key learning. So I, 
at that around that time, I started to work with. I, it was suggested to me, and I started working with an executive coach who I only, you know, I worked with that one for a year, and then I worked with another one a year, and then I've worked with a third one for like fifteen years. So, you know, you don't always stay with them, but the process is fantastic. And I, anyway, so I was working with this coach, and we would have these calls and talk about business and goals and whatever. Coach, right? And one day I was basically lamenting that all these people wanted to buy the software and it was kind of a pain in the neck. And and a great executive coach, the reason a good one, a, or let me say it differently, a great executive coach is successful in the questions that they ask you. It's in the it's in the enlightenment that they create in you that causes change, right? So so I'm complaining about stuff and she starts asking me some questions and I'll never forget it. She said to me, well, let me ask you, and I'm complaining that these people want to buy it and I don't want to sell it to them because I think it gives me a competitive advantage and I don't want other advisors having it and this is great and blah, blah, blah. And she said, she asked me this series of questions. She said, well, let me ask you something. Why do clients come to you? And I said, oh, well, so I went into my pitch. I'm like, I'm financial advisor, right? And she said, is there anything else? And she asked me like three different ways so that I completely blew out all my air on how great I was as an advisor. And then she said, well, I didn't hear you say anything about your software. So that was my first, well, that was my first epiphany, right? Like, hmm. Then she went in for the kill and she said, well, let me ask you this. If your neighbor down the road advisor had the software, could you still compete? I'm like, well, of course I could, right? I mean, you bring it on, right? You're doing this. I mean, I mean, clients don't see this. I don't, you know, yes, I could compete. And then she really, just to fully seal the deal, she said to me, how might, you know, letting advisors buy this and creating economics and a community around, you know, like having this company that is a, is a group of advisors that you, and that's now going to give you feedback on what to do with the software and all that, how that might benefit. Back then it was Friedman and Associates. I was like, sold and sold. I mean, that was just, that was the closer. So, so the moral of that story is executive coaching is profound. Good executive coaching can be awesome. And that led to, you know, what's now Juncture. It wasn't my vision. It was just more, that's, that's, that can be really great. So I, I've got more questions about the juncture launch, but I, I, I got asked really fast. Any, any executive coaches you actually want to recommend for our listeners to, to check out or just how do you, how do you find a good one? Well, I mean, there's two, there's two that, um, I mean, there's, there's my perennial favorite, which many of you have heard me talk about. Her name is Sharon Hoover. And I think her email is like coachingworks at SharonHoover.com or something like that. Or you can email me and I'll pass along. But now she, I've worked with her personally for this. She's the one that's like 15 years. I mean, I, and, and I used to think that, you, you know, they each one had sort of a bag of tricks. And after about a year, you kind of ran through the bag of tricks. And my joke with Sharon is I still haven't exceeded her bag of tricks. I mean, I'm still learning stuff from her. When I run into certain situations, I'll start talking to her about it and she'll teach me something. And I'll be like, you know what? Until I run out of bag of tricks, I'm going to keep, I love her. She's great. Um, and then, well, this is, ep- I was going to say, this is episode uh, 54 of the podcast. So for people who are interested, we'll, we'll put a link out to Sharon Hoover in the, 
in the show notes as well. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 54 for episode 54, we'll make sure we have a link there if you're interested in reaching out to her. Great. Um, and then another another woman that we've actually done s- some coaching with, but also uh, I highly recommend for company retreats and facilitation. And that's another whole area we could spend time on, but a big user of that. We do company meetings, company retreats, owner retreats, whatever. But her name is Mary O'Connor and um, she's fantastic and, and just really good at whether it's an owner meeting and you're trying to work on some issues, whether it's an all hands employee type retreat and you want to work on the business or something, she's really good. And I think she does individual coaching also, uh, but I just really talented, talented people. Excellent. We'll, uh, we'll include links to both in the, in the show notes, kitsis.com slash 54. So, so you make this decision. I'm going to launch a technology company having, having just like come through 10 years of making no money for years while you're launching your first business. Well, I was pretty, you know, I was doing okay in wealth management, right? I'd settled. Okay. Kind of, At that point you were 10 I'm years I'm doing in. pretty well. I'm, and, but I'm really, trying to invest and grow and and kind of stuck not stuck but using technology that's helping me i mean what i always said about juncture early days was it allowed me to literally double the number of clients and the uh AUM and the whole bit i mean i went from you know 30 50 million to 100 million or something like that and i added one administrative person i mean it was phenomenal those early ROI on, on adopting something that could help. It was phenomenal, Michael. I was, I was, you know, blown away. So I've seen the reality and the benefits of this technology ROI. But, but it, it's funny. It's, it's kind of a corollary here. But you only get it if you invest in it and you actually commit to it. I think a lot of people buy te- technology and they don't fully, you know, they just say, okay, I installed it. Why am I not doubling and why am I not? Right, right. Anyway. Why is the good stuff not happening? That's another story. But anyway, so, yeah. So, so I mean, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing the technology company. But honestly, it wasn't even like, you know, when you think about running a company, you think about setting goals, growing, all that. No, no. Juncture for the first seven years was simply demand-driven. We did no marketing. So like you, you... You made software for yourself. Other advisors asked for it. So you sold it to them. That was that. Well, and so many more people want it that I need another salesperson. So many more people want it. I need more support. So many more people. I mean, we literally did a couple of conferences a year and that was our entire marketing. That was it. I didn't have a marketing budget. And we went from like, you know, we started out by by having Ken in his house in Florida and one salesperson in Raleigh, North Carolina that we, you know, hired to, who had, who had knew the product. And next thing you know, within five years ish, seven years ish, we had 10 people. We'd outgrown two different spaces. I had to hire a senior level executive to come in and run Raleigh because I needed someone to actually, you know, babysit. And, and I don't mean babies. I just mean, oh my gosh, no one's there. And there's a bunch of people. And no leadership. So, so as you went down this road, like you built the core piece for yourself and you started selling it to others. So did, did you go out and 
raise capital at some point to fund all of this or do you just literally cash flow it off the RA? We 100% cash flowed it off the RA. I mean, this is early days. Now, I did a friends and family and did a bunch of stuff around that a few years ago to try to build cloud. So desktop, right? Everything we're talking about was Juncture Desktop. Up until we started to build Juncture Cloud was when we went and did some friends and family, not outside, but friends and family. Because uh, at that point, you, you basically had to rewrite the software from, from scratch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cloud is totally different technology, totally different everything, totally different animal. And so these companies both continue. You run them both. <laughs> well, so, so yeah, I, yeah, I just want to be really clear, especially about Juncture. So I run Private Ocean. I'm part of a group that runs Juncture. I have really great leadership and a group. So, so what that looks like on the juncture side, because my office is in private ocean and, and I day to day, which is in the Bay area, not it's in the Bay area and, and it's wealth management. Um, but juncture, I have a vice president, I have a, um, CIO, you know, technical on the technical side. So, so essentially one person runs the entire technical side of the company. The other person runs everything else and then. Those two, myself and a fourth person, are the leadership team. So when I'm just curious, when did that come about? Like how long how long were you trying to run it on your own before ultimately you found that you you had to bring in other other leadership for juncture? I probably at about ten people. Seven years ago, I wanna say, eight years ago, brought in a senior guy. And uh that really w- it, long before cloud, I mean, even before then, I brought in a senior, senior guy from the Silicon Valley who had run companies and done all that. And uh, his name's John Shankler, but he came in a long time ago and he uh, he literally, uh, you know, freed me up quite a bit. Interesting. So it was it was a it was a chime driven shift for you. I, I mean, I'm just imagining you 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 made the software. It's your baby. It's got to be hard to hand your baby off to someone else to run. But it it wasn't really like that. It was more day-to-day operational, strategic product, all that very much involved, you know, very much involved roadmap. I mean, the things that are important to me, right? Service, what are our customers feeling? You know, how can I help? Those things I stayed involved in very much so. Well, well, and the good news as well is you're, you're, you're still running an advisory firm too. So you have a, a very unique perspective on what it's like to just actually be living in your own software, Absolutely. unlike a lot of software companies. Absolutely. I know when something doesn't work. It's, yeah. I'm using it. It's not working. So does that worry you when you look out there at the landscape and, and big players like Salesforce coming into our industry with financial services cloud? You know, do, you, do you worry about the competitive environment going forward? You, know, you talked about the the maturation of the advisory industry. Now we have a version of the the maturation of the advisor software industry in the CRM space in particular. Well, worry. I don't know that I worry per se. I do have a perspective on it. My perspective on it is that I think there are, I don't think there's one player that solves everybody's problems, 
right? So I think that there's a market for Salesforce. I think there's a market for us. I think there's a market for other, some, some of the other players based on the direction they've taken their products and, and how they think about it. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I, I would be naive and, and wrong to say that those players don't have, well, Salesforce in particular doesn't have impact all over the place. But these are very different animals. I mean, these are really different animals for the end user, which is us, right? Advisor firms, very different proposals. Everything from the cost of doing business with them, the domain knowledge and expertise, who they're really targeting, you know, that kind of thing. Who's their real, who, who is their real sweet spot? How do you get help? When you get help, do they actually understand what you're asking? I mean, my favorite example is, you know, call most of the CRM providers, call them up and say, tell me how I track RMDs in your CRM. Good common advisor challenge. Yep. Well, and then just sit back and listen. And that will tell you all you need to know about, you know, the differences, I guess. Um, Like at Juncture, what we do is we actually have, when we hire support people, we actually put them through and we have, have, and we have ongoing training with our trainers and our trainers are all people that have financial services experience. So even though they're trainers and they love training, they've all got, you know, backgrounds in working in finance and financial planning and whatever, because we want people in our company to know the customer and to know what the issues are and to help them communicate and, and, and actually help them solve problems. Right. I mean, so, so you got juncture under underway, got your growth cycle through 2008, then the transition to the, to the cloud and, and, and raising some capital. And at some point along the way, it was no longer Friedman and associates on the advisory firm side. Yeah, so Friedman Associates, we get to about 250 million. Got some several advisors, some support people. I mean, we're we're doing fine. We're feeling good. And uh Richard Stone reaches out to me. He's about 2 miles away from me. You know, we of course knew each other or seen each other around. We didn't really know each other super well. And says, "Hey, we should get together for lunch." So we get together, and at that point, I'm 49 and he is 64. So we sit down, he says to me, you know, it seems like we should talk. We have very similar businesses. We end up having a nice lunch. But the, the, the very impetus, the, the kernel here was he's 64, succession planning, doesn't really have anybody on staff, doesn't know how to take the company forward beyond him. How might that look? Blah, blah, blah. So that became the beginning of a year-long discussion and exploration. And the resulting merger was all about just building something bigger, better, better together, but also having the size and scale to allow his succession and then ultimately mine later, you know, being, being bigger and things like that. So, so you, were, you were 250 million at the time. Uh, and they were like 500 million. Okay. Yeah, they were like twice the size. So what, is that, what does that structure look like? You, uh, this is after the financial crisis? No, it was a beautiful thing. It was right before the financial crisis and literally three months before we were supposed to close, right? So we're in the stages of just final whatever, you know, the the world 
sort of stops on his axis. And the, and, and the very obvious question is, do we still go forward? And to me, the obvious answer was, of course. I mean, what does this change? You know, we're still better together than not. And maybe it delays it because we're so busy talking to clients and, you know, right, doing what we have to do. But yeah, absolutely. So, so the timing of it was inauspicious, right? I mean, we, we, our, first, our first year or two was definitely all hands on deck, just take care of clients. And So how did that merger process go? Like that's a, it's a sizable firm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to presume you were probably, what, eight, eight to 10 staff. Richard might have been, would have been more than that. So, so we were seven and they were 14. Okay. We, were, we almost scaled identically. Huh. So 250 and five. Seven people and 14 people. It was pretty funny. But but there were a lot of, you know, you line your fingers up and stick them together. There were a lot of things that, that really lent itself well. Like Friedman & Associates was, was at a place where m- m- to get to the next level, I needed three really key and expensive positions. I needed a COO type person. I needed a chief compliance officer type person. And I needed an investment, you know, CIO or research or some some high level because I was chairing my expensive own expensive positions. None of these are cheap, and I was at that place where I'm wearing all these hats. I can't keep doing it. Blah blah blah. Well, they had all those, right? So so when we merged overnight, I had my CCO, so I got to get rid of those duties. I had my you know they had an investment committee and they had a chief research guy. I'm like great done. I'll be part of the investment committee, but he can do the work. Awesome. And then our COO that they had, which is, was fantastic. So, so from that perspective, that was a really obvious, great, you know, like, okay, that's, that's, yeah, you know, I can, I can go hire everybody and make no money for a few years while I grow into it or I can merge. And so how did the actual merger process go when the time came? Cause that's a lot of people. Uh, to mergers. Yeah, so mergers are really tough stuff. And under the best of circumstances, they're tough. If if the circumstances aren't really awesome, they can be even tougher. So the way I think about it is this. First of all, I'll just I'll just cut to the chase and summarize some really key learnings that I will recite to the end of my days about mergers that I think people should be aware of. First of all, you should basically take a year or two is better and just know that you got to work through a lot of stuff. Now, the faster you work through it, the better you are, but not everybody staff-wise survives mergers. There are cultural misfits that, that really don't benefit you know, and the quicker you address those, the better. So that's in staff. I mean, that's true. That that happens. You know, some people are great with change and growth and, uh, and some aren't. And the ones that aren't, you got to figure that out and, and get them out of the way and move forward. And the faster you do that, the better. Which is hard for most, most firms, right? Like I, I, it's really hard. Yeah. You know, no, like firing no. our staff. I find particularly in this industry, you know, we're, we're, we're helper types. That's why I become financial advisors. Like we're helper types. It sucks to fire anyone. We're nice people. We never want to do it. I know. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, these are some things that I just didn't see coming. So both businesses were growing nicely organically through referral. 
you know, Richard and I are both are good at asking and getting whatever. What I didn't realize, and, and the analogy I use is picture a tree with a whole, like a whole bunch of little green leaves. And when you're just humming and all the leaves are really healthy, you know, you can shake the tree, whatever, it's all good. What a merger does, and, and let's say the leaves on the tree, each leaf represents a client relationship. And when everything's just great, that that leaf is real healthy and it's attached real tight to the tree. And so, you know, shake here, shake here, but it's all good. And a couple apples, a couple of referrals fall out. Well, not referrals, but when you merge, the way I liken it is you should be thinking that your tree now looks like it's borderline winter. You should you should look at your tree and say a couple things are different. All those leaves are now not so healthy, maybe a little yellow, and they're not all telling you. Clients do not, I mean, we did very proactive communication. We told them why this is so amazing for them. We told them why the only changes they were going to see were just improvements. Oh my gosh, it's the best thing ever. Blah, blah, blah. Well, what happens is I learned, it took me about a year to learn why, and it took me about six months to see what was happening and a year to really understand why and get clients to tell me why. But all the referrals dried up immediately. So so for a year or two, nobody's referring you business. Suddenly, you know, everybody's sort of taking a wait and see. Those that were borderline that you may not have even known were borderline leave, right? So clients leave that you didn't even think were at risk. Right, because they... You gave them, you know, they were thinking about it, even though you didn't know, and you gave them an excuse. So that's right. That's right. And then the real surpriser was some of my very best, longest time clients stopped referring or doing anything. And and when I actually, you know, I have a good relationship with them. So when I actually said, "Hey, am I just sensing this, or is this true? You're you're not actually, you know, kind of. Is there something wrong? Is everything okay?" It was, oh, no, 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 we love you. It's all great with you. We just want to wait and see. We don't know what we're referring into because we don't know what it's all going to become. Right. So you've, you've you know, introduced wait. change and uncertainty into their referral equation, which is scary That's when right. referring. That's exactly right. And so now I know, I get it, I understand. And you know what? I can't argue with them. I was thinking about this. I mean, it makes sense, right? So is there so, anything you would have done differently knowing this or just – Beyond just recognize like organic growth is going to slow down for 18 to 24 months? It's a great question because I was so incredibly research-oriented and thoughtful about communication and the process that I didn't learn anything that I would change differently. I just now expect different, right? I mean, I don't know that I could have communicated differently or more. I don't know that now the only other thing I'll do differently, if, you know, or whatever is maybe I'll address that more directly early with those clients and say, look, I'm if I'm you, I'm thinking blah, 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 because now I know. But I just didn't know. It didn't it didn't occur to me like that. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, I we were very open. I mean, we had open houses, you know, come meet everybody. You know, we were very transparent. We just felt like if we communicated a lot, that that's how you, you know, sort of work through this. And uh and so I know it's it's not you because you're you're you and and Richard is Richard, but I'm I'm curious if you have any perspective on what what was that like from Richard's end as as well, particularly since 
you know, he's looking at coming into this because it's also his retirement plan and and an exit. So he's got, I don't know, seems like he, he's got some additional baggage on this transition, even even above and beyond what you were going through. Well, what's interesting was the retention issue was definitely vastly bigger on his side of the equation. So we didn't, we didn't, you know, on my side, Friedman Associates side of the ledger, if there is one, we didn't have the same retention issue. I think we all had the same referral issue, but the retention issue was bigger on the salient side. And I think you're highlighting exactly right. I think people were uncertain. Are you going to be here? Are you leaving? What does this mean? And again, you know, I think, I don't know. I think the other thing is that is true about mergers is that it's really, really important. I just have a whole different perspective about due diligence. Um, so let me give you an example, a really key point. We always surveyed our clients. And so now, like we're doing an acquisition right now, and we we required this firm to do a survey of their clients. And there's things I wanted to understand, right? And and I wanted to understand how they thought about certain things and all that kind of like, stuff. Like what? Just well, one of, yeah, one of my favorite examples is why did they select you? So let me tell you why that's important. People chose Friedman and Associates since I did predominantly the pitching and selling of that because they wanted financial planning. They wanted, you know, someone who really dug in and got into all their laundry and really helped them personally and professionally and whatever, right? People chose salient because of academic and incredible performance, beta, smart beta, before beta was even smart. You know, I could keep yeah, going, right? Because I, I know Richard was has a long history of being active with IMCA and investment management. And, oh, yeah. You know, that was yep. – Yep. That was his that was his bread and butter. Institutional money management for the, you know, for the yeah, high for net the worth. Individual. Yeah. Yes. Nothing wrong with that, right? There's no judgment about that, but it's very different. Well, so we put the combined firm together and we're all excited. Both of us, Richard and I, we're all excited because now imagine this. Deep, deep, deep wealth planning, financial planning with heart all these issues and amazing investment management. Not that Greg's investment management is bad, but this is a step up, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Like we're taking Isn't the best it? of two worlds and marrying together. This should be glorious. That's right. That's right. So if you think about it and take a step back, if you're if you're someone who chose a wealth management firm for the financial planning stuff, and then after the merger, you're still getting all that, but oh, you also get what seems like a little bit of improved execution on investments. Okay, good. Now you talk to the guy who chose the firm because of this incredible academic, superior, amazing institutional investment. Uh, planning was an afterthought. If it was requested, whatever. We start introducing all this stuff to him. We're like, yeah, we're not really interested in that. We don't really care about that. Are you charging us for that? I mean, it was a different dynamic. And, so, and, and where's Richard and why isn't he talking to me about my portfolio? Well, and Richard was around, but you know, again, it, it's not... He was around for a while. So it wasn't that, but it was also this whole, you know, maybe you're going in this other direction that, that, and, and so I'm not sure. Now, I mean, it, it wasn't anything we didn't overcome, but there was a couple of years there where it was like, okay, what's happening here, right? I mean, <laughs> what's going on with some of these clients? And, and people that chose you to beat markets ultimately will leave you. 
We know this, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Because at some point, well, you won't win even if you're really good because no one wins everything. That's right. Well, no one chose Friedman Associates because of any illusion or anything they heard from me that our investment prowess was second to none. What I would always do is what I think a lot of us do and is say, you know, we have a great approach. This is a sound, philosophical, academically sound way to invest. And we don't control markets and we don't control these. And, you know, if we did, my joke is I'd wear a turban and I would tell you exactly, I'd do Bitcoin and then I'd get out and, and you know, short of that, here's the best way we think you should invest. And and um, so it was a little bit different story. But the point is, is that that, that caused some wrinkles for a few years. And um, so knowing that going in is important in a merger, right? Really knowing what was the story? What did you buy? You know, and then how is that going to be feeling? Because ultimately, they always stick with that. Even if it was 10 years ago, they bought because of this. It's why they bought. It's stuck in their so, head. It's really hard to reprogram that. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's the saying, old, like, you know, the, uh, I mean, I know this for so many advisors in the insurance side of the business, because that was where I started. And, and, when I got underway, everyone was shifting from insurance to doing broader financial planning in the insurance channel as well. And they were all struggling to get referrals from their clients for financial planning, even though some of them were doing some pretty good financial planning work because the clients would say, well, you're, you're my insurance guy. Yeah. That's what I bought from you originally. And, and, and you get stuck in that slot. You know, you do a, uh, you do a portfolio thing or an investment thing and you're the investment guy and, and all of the, you know, we get stuck in these little boxes. And I think it's particularly challenged when we're trying to do comprehensive planning. Cause the whole point is no, 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 we cross lots of boxes, but clients tend to put us in one and keep us there. Yep. That's exactly right. So where did private ocean come from? The name? Yeah. You didn't keep Freeman associates or salient. Well, no, that that didn't make any sense, but because we were really trying to create something new and combine. So, Private Ocean actually makes tons of sense, and it goes like this: When we got together, you know, you, you always hire the obligatory marketing people who who go talk to cl- you know clients. They talk to people that know you. They talk to you, and they talk to Richard. And they talk you're right, and they kind of come up with well, what we're hearing is is that here's here's this firm. One firm who's incredibly personable and personal and very, you know, in depth and very, you know, and then we hear this power. You guys have PhDs and master's degrees and academic rigor and personal and powerful. So they came up with a bunch of names, but, you know, some of which were prefabricated. But the one that the owner group sat there and looked at, we all looked at each other when they gave us five different names. And one of them was Private Ocean. And their whole thinking was personal and powerful, right? So the private is the personal part. And the, and the, and the uh, ocean is the, you know, it's the power. It's the vast resources. So the idea of Private Ocean is we're channeling these vast resources and, and, and bringing all this, harnessing all this power to your personal situation and to you personally. And, and uh, adapting it that way. So that literally is our story. I mean, we, we, that's how we talk about it. And when, and it's a, by the way, it's a great lead in or when people say, what do you do? And everyone struggles with their elevator pitch, which we all do. 
I always just say I'm I'm CEO of Private Ocean, and I'll I'll usually follow up with something like, and it's not a spa, and I'll laugh, <laughs> and uh, they'll say, oh, what is it? Interesting name, and that gives me the avenue to explain that story. It just you know wealth management, personal, powerful, that whole thing. But they're listening. They're like, well, that's different. So we like it. You know, we we of course have run with it. Yeah. So if I were to drop in and look at your world today, you're you're running the advisory firm Private Ocean with 27 employees. You're you're part of the executive team for Juncture with a with a good leadership team to support you there. Like that's it's a lot of stuff and two pretty sizable businesses. So what what is your week look like? I mean, how do, how do you how do you time manage this stuff? That's a great question. So I'm going to answer it this way. First of all, my week is very busy. Uh, there's no question. I, I'm I'm I run around quite a bit. I'm, I'm booked up quite a bit. But I'm intentional with my time. I I, I, te- I tend to pick and choose things that I think bring the most value to all of this. So what does that what does that mean? Like what do you well, I mean what do you choose or not choose? Well, I'll constantly triage one thing over another. So for example, you know, I'll get an opportunity that comes my way to maybe talk with, you know, someone who's starting up a new technology in our industry who wants my opinion and got referred to me. And I may drop something else and go, yeah, I want to see that. I want to look at that because you know, it's part of part of my role at both companies is to be making decisions and and help guide direction. So being in the know is really helpful and useful. And so I'll get those kind of opportunities. But but all that aside, I mean, the the reality is is that I'm only able to do what I'm doing in any capacity and to whatever degree successful because of the people I have around me. The people at Juncture, the leadership team, they're unbelievable. I mean, my my vice president that runs everything but all the technology side, he's fantastic. He's amazing, right? And so he's overseeing sales, marketing, finance, support. I mean, he's got a ton of people reporting to him and he's amazing. Same with my CIO who handles developers, technology, infrastructure on Juncture, right? Here at Private Ocean, uh, I've got an amazing COO who is fantastic. And she, you know, I mean, she really uh, day-to-day operationally, I mean, wealth management firms don't need a ton of, of day-to-day, what are you doing? What are you doing? We need to support the people doing what they're doing. Now, Private Ocean has investment operations. Well, we have a director of investment ops and he's incredible and he does a great job. And if he needs something, he knows where to find me, right? And then we have regular, we have what's called an expanded leadership team. And the expanded leadership is myself, the COO, the director of investment ops, the director of client services, our director of IT, our director of marketing, right? So it's essentially the lead of each area of the company. We get together, I don't know, every other month and we go through anything going that's that's for non urgent stuff and it's like how's it going what are we working on um you know all that kind of stuff so it's structure it takes michael to your point it takes good people and it takes structure because if those people weren't doing nice work and and i didn't trust them or have confidence in them it wouldn't work 
because I'd be strung out all over the place going, you know what? <laughs> I don't have to micromanage and I don't feel like I do. And So are you still seeing clients as well? Do you still keep a subset of client relationships or are you think, well, suddenly in the management world now? Well, I do not have a dedicated set of clients. However, thank goodness, I absolutely, I probably get in a couple client meetings a month and it's usually based on, there's a couple things that bring me to a client meeting. One is there are just certain clients that the advisor knows that I want to be in on or the client will request, hey, can Greg, you know, copy Right, copy people in. you've got history with because you've been doing this for 20 Absolutely. plus years. Or, or sometimes they'll have very specific questions that they want my input also, right? As well as the advisor. So those kind of things. Obviously, I get all the fun stuff, which is any kind of anytime there's a problem. Right, right. The hard stuff uh, flows yeah, right get, up to you. Yep. I get all the hard stuff. But, you know, I just want to make the point that I'm really clear on why this business is so important to me. I'm really clear on my excitement about what we do for people. So I don't ever want to be in a situation where I never meet with a client. I, I don't, I mean, every once in a while I even get, I get a chance because sometimes I get referrals directly to me and I don't just hand those off. I say, I'll go to the meeting with somebody I'm bringing and I want to be part of the pitch. I don't want to be put out to pasture yet. Right. I mean, I think it's important for me to continue to be involved like that. And plus I love it. It's fun. So you looking back over the trajectory and changes of the, of the business since you got started, you know, you, you talked about the, the nature of client referrals is different today. The competitive landscape is different today. So for advisors who are getting started or maybe in that, in that first delicate, like three to five year period where you're just trying to get traction and cash flow positive and, and pay your bills, is there any advice you would give to newer advisors today trying to find that, that traction the way that you did besides the Tire Dealers Association? Well, I, I think it's, um, I mean, the question I always have is I really, first of all, the opportunity set as well as the challenges are totally different. Let's start there. Okay. So if I just take a step back, given what I know, but now looking at today, but now I'm suddenly 25 years old and I want to get started. The first question, and I get a lot of people asking me this. So, so thank you for asking because I would, I would throw it out this way. The first question I always ask people is, have you really thought about how entrepreneurial you are? Um, and the reason I ask that question is I like to really have some fun with people and talk about and get them to really try to understand the upside and the not so upside of your own deal, right? And, and just, just right there, like before you even get into you know, I don't like working for people or whatever, but just really drill down on that for a bit because people need to be very clear about that. And the reason I say that is because that can help inform a really much different decision about what you might want to do right now. So for example, what didn't exist for me that does exist today is something that, for example, Private Ocean does. So I know we're not the only ones. So the idea is this. We now have 15 owners. You know, my my advisors here have all, or mostly all, 
after some time is spent and after some criteria and some agreements have had the opportunity to buy in and, you know, at very favorable pricing to become, you know, equity partners in a growing wealth management firm. Now think about the risk profile of that. By the way, they got paid all along the way. They maybe worked 50 hours instead of a hundred. A hundred, yep. <laughs> oh my God. I, I was, I mean, basically what sacrificed the most in all these years, when I think about, like I would literally work eight, 10, 12 hours. I, I was so unhealthy when I was 35 and 40 with the kids and that, because what I decided was I would get up early, go to work, come home at three or four, do some hours with the kids and then go back to work basically. I mean, you know, I needed my next shift and I, and I didn't sleep enough and I didn't, you know, all this other stuff because I just, you, you know, you have bills to pay, you got things to do. You just don't, there's not a lot of options, you know, right? Right. So I think what exists today is a different, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying if that's what you want to do, go do it, you know, but, but be ready for that. Right. I mean, be, be well, my dad used to, well, I was going to say my dad used to tell me, look, you can have anything you want if you're willing to pay the price it takes to have it. And I think that there's a little bit of a misconception that somehow doing your own thing or starting your own business or being on your own is all freedom and awesome. And it is freedom. It's freedom to not get paid. It's freedom to not be able to afford to eat. It's freedom to not be able to afford to live. It's free, right? It's free. Yeah. It's, 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 well, and it's, I mean, I feel like you just sort of, you quietly threw it in there. Like you made seven grand the first year and 14 grand the second year and you're working 80 to 100 hours a week. I mean, that that's an insane amount of work for horrible, horrible compensation. Obviously, this has worked out well in the long run because building a business with compounding growth is an amazing thing. But, I, you know, I, I I feel like sometimes there, you know, we we don't realize even for a lot of the large successful firms today that that like it's pretty ugly for virtually everyone in those first few years like it's really it's really rough you know how the cigna described it which i always i always appreciated later i didn't appreciate it at the time but i remember i had this this our regional vice president bill burke and he described it this way i remember first day of boot camp he got us all together and said guys here's how this goes you know, you're going to hate us for the next few years. You're going to hate all of it. He said, think of it like an aircraft taking off. He said, this is your career. So you're on the beginning of your runway. And basically for the next three to five years, you're going to be full thrust, right? So that's that part of the flight. Then you'll be able to level off and have a life. Or more of a life, but that first three to five years, it's full thruster all the time and you're going to hate us and you're going to hate, your wife's going to hate you and you're, you know, people are going to be upset at you and you're going to be missing stuff and you're going to, you know, have to make tough decisions. But they, but he said, that's what it takes to get these, to get this off the ground. Now he said, not everybody does that and not everybody's willing to do it. And a lot of people will fight and argue and say, I'm not right. And you'll just have to judge for yourself. Well, guess what? In my group, you know, I, I'll never forget this. I mean, of the people, uh, you know, I mean, we all scattered. And I'm pretty confident that 
I'm the one. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> you're, I, I, you're, I, I, you were the last man standing of that original class. Well, no. Well, what I mean is, no, they're all standing, but but very different levels of and very different situations. Let's just put it that way, and not bad, not judgment, not whatever. Just saying, I think I think there's a little bit of a because I've met some people that are like, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing, and I don't want to talk to anybody. Whatever, that can work. I, I get it. Uh, you just be aware of, you know, what's on the other side of that. Yeah, I can't honestly tell you that if I were to start a business today, not say it differently, if I were 25 today wanting to do financial planning, wealth management, I honestly believe that I probably would get a job in a great firm that I thought shared my vision that I had an opportunity to earn or buy into. I would definitely want to be a player. I'd want to be part of it and all that. But I probably would have done that. I mean, I'm pretty entrepreneurial. I got it. I, I'm, you know, but but I think I would probably go that route, just especially given the competition and stuff. I'd be like, you know what? I'd rather have something behind me and let's go. And and how can I leverage it? And, you know, I'd be, I'd probably do that. But again, that's not a judgment. I'm not saying right, right, everybody right. should do that. I'm just saying, you know, if you're really going to do it on your own, awesome. I, I commend yeah. you. That's great. You know, well, and, and, and uh, heck, I'll support it. I'll help it. You know, how can I help? Well, but and even in that context, there's even if your ultimate goal is that you want to be on your own or you think you want to be on your own, who knows, a couple of years from now, there's nothing wrong with getting a few years of experience and just getting your feet under you in the industry and finding out what you really actually like to do when the when the time comes. You know, the the accounting world, like people get their accounting degrees and they get their CPA license and they work in a big four firm for three to five years. And and that's, and that's their, you know, full thrust situation. And then you decide, do you want to climb the ladder at this big firm? Or do you want to go out as an independent? Or do you want to join a regional firm? And you've got a lot of choices once you've got a reasonable experience base. And those were just jobs that didn't exist in the past, right? Like you either sold stuff or you didn't survive. So the, the, the fact there's this new category now is, is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's good for people. So from the technology end, as we, as we come to the end here, I do have to ask, you know, so looking back in terms of the, the technology company and the decision to launch a tech firm you know, as, a, as a side gig while you're building an advisory firm, any words of wisdom and experience for other advisors that are maybe thinking about the, the same thing? They're looking at this and saying, I, I see a gap in the marketplace. There's a technology solution that I want and I can't find. And I think I can get someone to build it. And I'm pretty sure other advisors would buy it. And I, I think I can make a, uh, a technology company out of this. Uh, like any words of wisdom for someone going through that thought process? So that's a really, I get that question a lot too. And that's a really funny question. Um, to be a hundred percent candid, which is really all I know how to be. <laughs> I would, this is another one where if somebody specifically asked me that, I start asking them questions about where do their passions really lie. And what I mean by that is I don't recommend two even complementary responsibilities like I found myself in for anybody <laughs> because it's not, you know, it's not very balanced and uh, in terms of other things outside I mean, obviously, there's tremendous benefits, tremendous, uh, what's the word? I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, well, there's just a great, you know, chemistry between the two. But the reality is, 
if I were, I, I've met many advisors who say, you know, I've done this spreadsheet, I've done this analysis, and I've done this thing, and I think it could be a product and whatever. If I were, if I were to do things differently now, you know, I would say to somebody, find somebody to partner with that takes it, like it's their business. You know, license it, royalty it, sell it, do something. But I mean, I'm just saying to really get in the point where you're you're this deep into to, I mean, Juncture, Juncture was never supposed to be, you know, if you'd asked me year three when, you know, we had 50 advisors and Ken in Florida, whatever, and we were just trying to make them happy and learning some stuff and fixing something, you know, it wasn't like we want Juncture to take over the world. It wasn't, it wasn't the, but it was, wow, this is great. Look what we can do now that serves our business. Oh, look, we can make this change and look how we can use that in the business, right? So, you know, it wasn't supposed to be, okay, now it's this real thing that, you know, I mean, it's having success. It deserves success. It's got a bunch of really talented, smart, committed people that want it to be even bigger and better. Okay, let's go, right? So then it became, we got to right. really mature but, this company. And we did that 10 years ago. But, that, but, that's, but that's the challenge, right? Like if, if, you, if you end up wanting to take it seriously as a business, you're eventually probably going to have to hire someone to run it because you can't do both forever, and you may have to go out and raise capital at some point because growth demands and competition are going to make it hard if you don't, unless I guess you've got a, a very profitable core advisory business to cash flow it. Well, no, I, I never used Private Ocean or former Friedman Associates to cash flow Juncture. Juncture's never, those two businesses economically. Okay. I mean, so I'm, I'm listen, fiduciary, Michael. So yeah. literally, Private Ocean and Friedman Associates never even got a better deal. We get the best deal that anybody else gets, right? I mean, now I don't get surcharged, which is probably <laughs> luxury. But no, I mean, if I bring in a trainer right now today from Juncture for a couple hours, I don't get it complimentary just because I'm the boss and I can call somebody and go, hey, Julie, come help me. You I'm like, no, 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 charge it off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not fair, right? I mean, I got different stakeholders and, and it's not right. So one of the interesting things about podcasting is that we always record these uh, a couple of weeks in advance. It's just, it gives us time to do the sound editing work and prepare the podcast up to queue out to iTunes and all various podcasting services. Except the the funny thing that ended up happening with this podcast is that in the relatively narrow time window of just a week or two between when we originally recorded and then when the podcast was scheduled to be released, it was announced that Juncture was being sold to Advisor Engine, uh, one of what I call the, the robo-advisor for advisors platforms. And so this next few minutes is actually being recorded with Greg after the original interview, specifically just to talk a little about the the juncture sale before we uh, kind of return back into the originally recorded podcast. So, Greg, we we spent a bunch of the podcast kind of talking about why you decided to build Juncture and the and the opportunities serve advisors, and now the news is broke that you're selling the company. So. Can you share with us what leads to a decision to to sell the business? And I guess particularly when when you're not, at least as far as I know, actually planning to retire yet. So this isn't the like 
peace out, so long, everybody, I'm done, had a great run. What leads to a, a, a sale transaction like this? Well, it's a great question. And I'm smiling because uh, this is definitely not a, you know, drop the mic moment yep. and walk away. So one of the things that is is really exciting for me is that I have actually been looking on behalf of both the company, the employees, the shareholders, myself, for a number of years about what's Juncture's next chapter? What's, you know, where where do we take it from here? Clearly, I personally cannot, you know, go too much further with it, having another day job <laughs> uh, running that, Private Ocean. That little advisory firm thing with yeah, dozens of employees. So, you know, right. Yeah, exactly. So what makes this particularly exciting for me is that it took this long, literally three years-ish, to find the right situation that I felt had to check some boxes. So number one, it had to take care of the customers, of which I am a customer. <laughs> so, right. so, so what I meant by that is, you know, in looking at things like what's the roadmap What's the vision, uh, you know, by Rich Cancro and Advisor Engine? And, you know, wh- where are they wanting to go with it? Why do they want it? All those kinds of things. It just, that box was checked in spades. And I'll come back to that in just a second, expand on that. The second box it had to check was it had to take care of the employees, which this is tied together because if the opportunity is something that we want to come acquire you because we want to grow you, and we want to invest in you, then the employees are taken care of. So, so again, there's a synergy there between taking care of the customers and taking care of the employees. And then third, and really a distant third, was the shareholders. I felt like if we found a situation that took care of the first two, while it may not be the max dollar scenario that, that can happen in M&A, it'll be enough. And, and, and the investors who are side by side with me, I'm the biggest investor, but I had friends and family and and my co-founder, Ken, and other people. What we cared about the most was that, you know, we were fairly compensated, but that the future of the company, you know, had the best shot at really being successful and going forward. So, so all those boxes were checked in this scenario. And, you, you know, you started your question with, well, you built this software company because you wanted to take care of advisors. Well, the great thing is, Everything I was talking about a week ago in the podcast is 100% true. It's 100%, you know, from my heart. And nothing that's happened in the last week or two has gone against that. In fact, it's actually gone for that. I, I've, I'll be candid. I've, I've been frustrated, like a lot of our customers, with how fast we can develop, how fast, you know, the visions and the, and the, ideas, of course, are a lot bigger than the ability and the capital to develop it. So, you know, suddenly uh, it's a real world challenge of just, yeah, you can have all sorts of ideas and vision of what you want the software to do. But, you know, revenue is X, you've got this many developers you can afford to pay, they can only churn out code so fast. So, you know, your your roadmap gets constrained to the capital, which is just sort of a reality for any any software company. But, you know, it, it, it's sort of the pluses and minuses. You you never went to take outside capital or at least like a, a venture capital infusion with the additional money you get to build your vision, but the strings that come attached with 
outside investors with venture capital kind of expectations. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I get it from that end that, you know, you get big just because of the dollars that advisor engine brings to the table, you know, you, you guys are going to get to do a lot of accelerated roadmap development on juncture cloud that you probably just couldn't do in the past because of the, the amount of dollars available. Exactly. But there's more than just what Advisor Engine brings in terms of capital. They have one of the best user experience, you know, of any application I've seen. They really, they have a team of designers and technical people that it doesn't take a lot to envision bringing some of that to Juncture Cloud, for example, as well as some of the functionality around client onboarding and some of the really, really, I mean, technical term, right? But really cool uh, features that Advisor Engine platform around client onboarding and things like that can do. And tying that into CRM tightly is is really exciting. I mean, and that's that's just the beginning from a vision standpoint of of what, you know, what they're anticipating, you know, delivering and, and working on. So, I mean, I'm really excited. I, I'm excited as a customer, <laughs> you know, of Juncture because, uh, you know, Private Ocean has been on desktop from day one, of course, but uh, Juncture Cloud for over a year. And, you know, we're while we love it and we're excited with what it does for us today, you know, I'm now really excited about the, the prospect of accelerating this roadmap as well as, you know, I just want to really say something else, too. You know, while I love to think we, we have all the great ideas, I've been really impressed with essentially the talent and the thought process and some of the ideas that, you know, are, are certainly being brought to the table from the advisor engine side that I didn't see at all. And, you know, and I thought I knew my stuff and I thought I live in an RA firm and, right, we all think we know we're pretty smart. I was, you know, I mean, I've had people show me some things and think, hey, would it be useful if it could do and if you had this information to run your firm and things like that? And it wasn't even on my radar. And I was like, yes, that would be awesome. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's do so that. I'm pretty excited about that, that kind of stuff. So what happens for... For you personally, you know, I, I, I know you had a, a co-founder and, and some other investors and all this is, is, is in your pocket, but, you know, Juncture just got sold for 20 something million dollars is, is sort of the, the rumor number. So there's a big chunk of cash. Is that just now, now you're comfortable and you can build and not worry about how things turns out because retirement set is, is this, yeah. is this going to no. seed like the next FinTech company that you're going to go and make now that you got rid of the last yeah. one? Like what's, I'm, I'm still smiling for you. Yeah. It's too bad. This isn't video. Cause you'd see me smiling and saying no and no. So, so I want to be, I, I'm going to answer it this way really clearly. First of all, yeah, the, the, the numbers are not, you know, that's, that's, uh, I'm 56 years old and no, I'm not retiring. I'm also not interested in starting another company or, you know, I've had two full-time plus careers for 17 years. That's how old Juncture is. And prior to that was just Friedman Associates. So I'm super excited at working eight to nine hours a day 
and thinking that that's a vacation. So I'll start there. Meaning just eight or nine hours a day. Just eight or nine hours because that's what it takes minimum to run a wealth management firm. But for me, that'll be like a vacation because of what I've been experiencing. But, you know, all kidding aside, I mean, you know, I'm 56 years old, private oceans. I mean, I'm, my passion is what advisors and what we do for clients. That's driven me since I, my early twenties. That's what I've thought about. That's what I take pleasure in. Juncture is exciting and awesome and amazing, but it was only in service of helping do a better job for clients and being able to serve more of them in the way that I felt, you know, everybody deserved. So I'm really excited about focusing on continuing to build private ocean to serve more people the way I, I think people should be served. Technology, you know, I'm maintaining a really great role with Advisor Engine in a consultant, you know, in, in what I think I do best, which is really my ideas, my passion and knowledge around the wealth management industry, you know, weighing in on the roadmap, the product, the strategy, which is really where I think is my best, you know, in terms of, of value. And yet that doesn't take 40 hours a week and it doesn't take, you know, I mean, I, I will actually have the, the time and bandwidth to focus on private ocean, you know, more than I have been able to in the past. So I'm very excited about that. And you know, bad news for those that wanted me out of the industry. Sorry. <laughs> Not done yet. Not done yet. And, uh, you know, definitely I'm going to keep writing and I'm going to keep, uh, you know, I love our industry and I love helping advisors. I love helping people not make the mistakes I've made. I love, you know, I love things that are in service of providing great advice to our clients. And uh, so I'm very inspired and excited about continuing to do that. And That'll probably show up in a bunch of different ways. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to share some additional thoughts on this. Now we'll circle back to the rest of the original podcast interview. Sounds great. Thank you, Michael. So as we come to the end, this is a, a show about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up in the, in the podcast is that success just means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us at different stages in our own lives. So as, as someone who's you know, built what most objectively would call a a very successful business or, or two successful businesses. I'm curious, just for yourself, how do you define success from here? Well, like in life, or yeah, I mean, where where are you trying to take your time and focus going forward? What's what's successful for you? Well, I think I'll answer it this way. I I, I mean, a lot of things come to mind, so I'm not trying to be cagey about it. It's just my brain is very active, and I go. Well, okay. Sure. I think a lot of things. Uh, number one, I'm definitely, you know, almost New Year's resolution-ish. I'm definitely committed to um, a little more balance, personal, you know, because I, I I work extreme. And and while I take care of myself and I have my interests and I, you know, I do tennis and, you know, I have my kids and I do things, um, I definitely plan on putting a little more personal back in the personal life because right now there's a little of that. What else? Success. I'm really excited and energized about the direction of both companies. I think, um, you know, when I think of, well, I'll start with Juncture and I'll come back to Private Ocean because again, I live in Private Ocean, but, you know, Juncture, I mean, our roadmap, our customer base, I'm very excited about 
you know, some things that are coming up. And, you know, I think that, and people are all going to, you know, hear about all this and it's public and stuff like that. But, but really, you know, I think that there's, uh, there's a place for juncture in our marketplace that's really valuable and really uh, a great place, you know, for a lot of advisors. And, um, so I'm excited about that. And then, and then, you know, when I think of private ocean, you know, every time, and this is how I think about it. Every time we take on a new client, I get very excited about the fact that, you know, we're helping this family. I love the way we help people. I love the heart we put behind it. I love the science we put behind it. I love the passion we put behind it. And so when I think of success, you know, if we're constantly keeping our clients happy, keeping our employees happy, you know, being honest, being, you know, acting with integrity and getting it right, uh, you know, trying to help people, it's, it's really exciting. It's really, that's what moves me. That's what gets me excited. I, you know, it's funny, Richard and I used to talk about this. When we first merged, Richard, we were 700 million or something like that. And Richard's like, you know, billion dollar, billion dollar, billion dollar. And, and, and I love Richard. He's a really great guy and he's very smart and he's great heart, great passion. But the way he was expressing it really rubbed me the wrong way. And I couldn't, I couldn't articulate it, but it bothered me. He always focused on billion dollar, billion dollar. And one day I had this epiphany because I thought about it and I said, you know, Richard, you and I are not at odds. It just occurred to me. We just express it differently. I want to do the most amazing job for clients that we can possibly do. I want to feel great about it. I want to deliver it in a way that has great value. You know, of course, they're going to pay us. That's fine. And as a result of that, I want to hit a billion dollars. And then I want to hit two billion. And I want to hit five. I mean, I'm very growth oriented. And I'm all about goals and growth. But I express it differently. I express it as I want our outcome to be X because of focusing on doing amazing work, constantly pushing the envelope of what we can provide clients, you know, really creating great value. So we weren't really at odds. We were just expressing it differently. So that's kind of a long answer, but it tells you a lot about what drives me and how I think about things. It's an outcome. Those are outcomes to doing the right thing. Those are outcomes to putting in the hard work, no shortcuts, you know, taking care of people. I've been rewarded very richly and very well for living right there. So whenever I'm faced with something, I go, well, what's the right thing to do? How can I take care of you? I'll let the rest work itself out. Yeah, I like that philosophy that you know, growth is not a goal. Growth is an outcome for, for serving clients well and doing well. Yeah, it feels right. It feels better to be. It's more It's more motivating to me. That's how I think about it. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for sharing this with us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. 
And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.